Thanks, Jason. Uh, the feeling is very mutual. Your church has blessed ours immensely. We view you as kind of a sister church. Uh, there's been some cross-pollination between our congregations. I actually preached here, not here, but at your church about eight years ago. Um, and I remember being very uh, struck by several different things about how your church was behaving as a family of God and wanting to bring those things back to our church, including we started a pre-service prayer meeting uh, modeled after what you guys do. So it's a, it's a mutual benefit, and we're really grateful. I, I remember very vividly preaching here eight years ago because um, I, I bring a little notebook with notes in it. And uh, I was, we were in a, it's like seating that went up like that. I don't remember exactly what building you were in, but uh, we we're sitting down. Um, singing, getting ready to sing the first song, and I decided I just want to go over my introduction a little bit. I opened my, my notebook, and it's, it's a different notebook. It's not the sermon. <laughs> and panic strikes me, and so I leave. I think uh, uh, one of the staff members helped me get in contact with somebody who happened to be at the church, and they emailed me my notes, and then I'm preaching from it. It was probably Paul's laptop or his, his iPad or something like that, and God, God provided. So that was quite an experience, but uh, I am really glad to be back. I love your church, and it's an honor to be here with you in the Word of God. I send you greetings on behalf of Maple Avenue. They are praying for you this morning, and probably about 10 minutes they'll be praying for you specifically. So uh, we're, we're, uh, we love being here two weeks ago. One of our pastors in training, one of our elders, uh, Stephen Jones, was here as well. So uh, we love you guys. We're here for you. And I know the feeling's mutual. We're in Isaiah chapter 43. Um, if you don't have a Bible, the ushers are coming around. They have them. You can just signal to them that you'd like one, and they will get it to you. And uh, they, the church wants you to know um, that if you don't have a Bible at home, you can take this home. This is their gift to you. So... Uh, be sure to take advantage of that. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 43. So I'd invite you to turn there. If you are using the Bible that was distribu- that's being distributed that looks like this, you can find that on page 565. Isaiah 43 is on uh, page 565. I'll give you a moment to find your spot, and then we're going to read the chapter. All right, Isaiah 43, hear what Holy Scripture says. But now thus says Yahweh, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am Yahweh, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored. And I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, 
for I am with you. I'll bring your offspring from the east and from the west I will gather you. I'll say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together, and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right, and let them hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am Yahweh, and besides me, there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and I am God, and henceforth, I am he. There's none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Thus says Yahweh, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans in the ships in which they rejoice. I am Yahweh, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King, Thus says Yahweh, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You've not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I've not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You've not brought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you've burdened me with your sins. You've wearied me with your iniquities. I... I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. Your first father sinned, and your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in a 
prayer before we begin. Father, um, you've spoken. We just heard your word. But right now, together, we unite our prayers and we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit. Because our hearts can be dull, our ears can be deaf, our eyes can be blind, and yet we know we need your word. We need to hear it, understand it, and we need to believe it. So we together are praying for a powerful work of your spirit through your word, the sword of the spirit, that we might be transformed this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years back, I was sitting with a friend who is not a, uh, a believer, and he'd been through some really awful things. As he sat across the table with me, sharing with me, I remember aching for him to know God's character. To be able to see him as he is, to know him as I knew him. If only he knew what God was like, he'd run to him and find shelter. If only you knew what God is like, I'm convinced you would run to him. When I first started reading through this passage, we're preaching through Isaiah, and so I you know, it was Sunday night, and I started looking at Isaiah 43, reading through it, and I was overwhelmed by how beautifully it captures who God is. And as my, as my mind was thinking about that, it drifted back to that conversation across the table from my friend. This is the God I wanted him to know. This is the God I want you to know, and this is the God that I want to know for myself better and better and better. Now, in order to to distill what's in this chapter, I'm going to divide it into three sections, each centered around God's words to us, words that reveal his character. So this is meet Yahweh in his own words. And here's the first set of words from verses 1 to 8. They are, I love you. I love you. And remember, this is the God of the universe speaking. The spiritual being behind all of this. The cosmic potter Aristotle's unmoved mover. And look what he says there at the beginning of verse 4. A line into it. We'll start at the beginning. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I want you to just let those words sink in for a minute. I love you. After I saw those words, I started scouring all the different holy books 
of other religions to see if any other so-called so-called gods spoke like that. And I couldn't find any such words. Not in the Quran. Not in the Book of Mormon. Not in the Bhagavad Gita. But 2,700 years ago, before it was in vogue for gods to be all loving and forgiving, that is how Yahweh spoke. Because of who he is, not because it fit our cultural moment. Now we can kill this verse with a thousand qualifications. I mean, it wasn't originally given to us. It was spoken to Israel in relation to how God was going to rescue them from exile. We see that if we look just before and just after this. The Babylonian captors, along with Egypt and Cush and Seba, would fall as part of the Israelites returning from exile. It was kind of a just sort of prisoner swap in which the captives are freed in exchange for the oppressors. And that would happen, we'll learn in the next chapter, at the hand of Cyrus. And verses 5 and 6, if you look at them, are very clear that this is about a return from exile. But those qualifications, far from being faithful exegesis, miss the boat entirely from this passage. Perhaps the most esteemed secular commentator on Isaiah says, here, the text follows the trend of the whole book toward as wide and general an application as possible. Now, our church has been moving through the book of Isaiah, but as you look at it and you read Isaiah, you you realize what he loves to do is to take the present situation of the Jews in that day and speak of things in a far bigger and far greater way from that. We've likened it to uh, driving a stick shift or a manual transmission. You know how when you're first learning and you're on the clutch and you're... Well, Isaiah's really smooth on the clutch. You don't know when he's talking exactly about Isaiah or or the, the Jews of his day and then moving to kind of the bigger plan of God and salvation. He does it so seamlessly. And I want you to see how he does that in our passage. So look how our passage begins in verse one. But now, thus says Yahweh, he who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel. It's pretty obvious he's speaking to Israel. But there's more going on. Because that word create is the dominant word of Genesis chapter 1. And that word formed is the dominant word of Genesis chapter 2. It's not so much that he's saying, Israel, I created and formed you. It's more like he's saying, I created the whole world and formed the first man and woman. And that general truth applies to you, Israel. That's not just a historical reality. It's a present reality for you. But then look down towards the end of this section in verse 7. 
We see that the return from exile marks the beginning of a new era of salvation. And who is going to be part of that? Verse 7, everyone, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created, yeah, for my glory, whom I formed and made. It's not just for Israel. It's for everyone who's called by my name. So yes, there's a certain unique way that this is something Yahweh is saying to his chosen people Israel who are about to go into exile and are going to need these specific words of comfort as they go into exile. But they are words for everyone who would receive them. The New Testament's most famous verse makes that clear. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God says, I love you. It's for us. What does it mean for us that the creator God loves us? What are the implications of that? Why is that an important truth for us to understand? I'm going to let Yahweh himself answer that. So look again at verse 1. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. Or look at verse 5. Fear not, for I am with you. He redeemed Israel from Egypt. For any who've embraced Jesus, he has redeemed us from our slavery to the darkness and our sin. He loves us. Enough to rescue us, buy us back, redeem us. So, so, we need not fear. The creator God who loves us is with us. So we need not fear. Many of us, perhaps most of us in this room, make our decisions largely based on fear. Fear that will be hurt again. Fear that those emotions will be triggered and rear their ugly head. Fear that I'll turn out like my parents. Or fear that I'll let my parents down. Fear that I'll mess up my kids. Or fear that my kids will mess up my life. I could go on. But the realities here are a game changer, not because our circumstances are going to change, either from the past or in the future, but because of who is with us and for us in the midst of those circumstances, no matter how hard they are. If we are in Christ, we are redeemed If we are in Christ, that means God is with us. And Yahweh says to us, I love you. So we're safe. Be gone, fear. Verse 2, the waters won't overwhelm us. It'll keep us from drowning. 
The fire won't consume us. I'll say a little bit more on that verse later. I told you that I scoured various sacred writings for a similar statement from these other so-called gods. In addition to not finding any of them saying specifically, I love you, here's something else interesting I found. Those other books do tell us of a God who loves, who loves the righteous and the good. When they speak of God loving, and they do, they differentiate between who he loves and who he doesn't love. If you meet a certain threshold of goodness, God loves you. But look at verse 8. These profound words, I love you, are given to Israel when what is true about them? He's just said, bring them out. Bring my sons from afar. Everyone who's called by my name. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes. Who are deaf, yet have ears. Summoning his people from the ends of the earth, calling them to return from exile. How does he describe them? That they have ears but cannot hear. That they have eyes but cannot see. He's going to talk about the nations in verse 9, but here in verse 8, he's talking about the very people he's just told he loved. And this description is profound. If you follow along in Isaiah, if you read through Isaiah, the blind, deaf image is used by him to describe people who have rejected God and his word. It's a foolishness that that leads people to chase after idols instead of worshiping Yahweh. That's who he says he loves. It's not just true that God so loved the world, John 3.16. But God showed his love for us in this that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8. I'm not preaching some sort of universalism here. God's love for all sinners doesn't mean all sinners ultimately escape hell. But what I'm trying to emphasize is the order. It's the order that's important. We don't start by being good enough and then God opens up his heart of love. He loves us while we are still rebels. And it's that love that draws us to him. That love shown most profoundly when Jesus gave himself on the cross for our sins is what transforms us. So if it doesn't mean universalism, what does it mean? It does mean if you are in this room and you feel like you're too dirty for God, that's a lie. Your sin's too dark. Your path of rebellion, it goes, goes on too long. It's cemented. You think that. And then God has you here in this room with these words for you from the Bible. I love you. When, when you had eyes but were blind, when you had ears but were deaf, like Israel of Isaiah's day. 
verses 1 to 8. I love you. Then we start a new section, verses 9 to 21. And the heading is, is it on the board there? I'm not going to tell you the heading. (laughs) Just to make you note-takers crazy. I will in a little bit. It's just going to keep you on the edge of your seat here. So God summons the nations. I had to coordinate that one. So God summons all the nations before him and asks them to do the impossible, to predict the future, or to prove that them and their gods can foretell what will happen. That's the ask at the end of verse 9. Can you tell the end from the beginning? They can't. But that's very different from how our God operates, which we see in verse 12. Think back to what happened back when God rescued his people out of Egypt by the hand of Moses. He had had Moses announce ahead of time what he was going to do, and then he would do it, and then the word about him would spread. Declare, save, proclaim. Do you see that in verse 12? I declared and saved and proclaimed. That is God's M.O. It's how he operates. He's done it all along in Scripture, up until Isaiah's day. He's been doing it throughout the prophecies of Isaiah, and he's even doing it in our own chapter. Remember, he's already said, I'm going to um, rescue them from Babylonian exile, and the rescue is going to involve the capture of the Egyptians. Then in chapter 44, he's actually going to name the name of the rescuer, Cyrus, some 150 years before it happened, declaring it before he does it. Not to mention the many other prophecies in Isaiah about a virgin-born Emmanuel, God with us, about a child who is also a king and also God, who's going to bring light to darkness, about a sheep who would be slain for our sins, declare, save, proclaim. Why is this God's MO? Why does he do it? Because it proves that he alone is God. So here comes the heading for this section. We'll see the phrase, God's words, first in verse 10. I'm looking in chapter 42. Verse 10, right in the middle, and understand that I am he. That's your heading. I am he. Or, I am the one, as some translators put it. This phrase occurs seven times in the book of Isaiah. All but one of those times are in our section from chapters 41 to 48. And three of those seven are in our chapter. What does it mean, I am he, or I am the one? It means, he alone is God which he proves by foretelling the future. Look at the end of verse 10. And understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. 
declare first, then save. He's the only one who can do that. Because he alone is God. If you're here and you're not a follower of Christ, I'll give you this challenge. Find another God who does that. Look at other religions. Verse 9 says, summon the witnesses. Go ahead, prove it. Prove your God's real. It doesn't happen. Because those, those other gods are false. They're made up. Some aping the God of the Bible. Some altogether different. But none of them begin first with declaring before saving and then having that proclaimed. So to further prove that Yahweh alone is God, to prove that I am he, God does some more declaring, which is what verses 14 to 21 are. They're an extended declaration of what's going to happen. For 14 and 50 kind of introduced the section, and then he says, you remember what I did when I rescued you from Egypt? He's talking in verse 16 and 17 here. A path through the mighty waters, an army aflame, then extinguished. Notice the echo from verse 2 of water and fire. God declares it, and then he saved them. But in verses 18 and 19, he's going to declare again. I'm going to do something new, he says. And then he uses metaphorical language to describe how he's going to rescue his people from exile. But as I said, as is typical in Isaiah, the metaphorical language tips the hand that there's an even bigger and greater rescuer in mind. It's about something more than mere return from exile. It's about bringing streams in the desert, restoring blessing to a land that was cursed, freeing even the jackals and the ostriches from the yoke of this fallen world. So do you believe God's words? Do you believe, do you trust when he says, I am he? Now, I am he maybe sounds a lot less important than I love you. But, but this is critical to the logic of our passage, so I want you to just catch this. We can trust the second statement. We can trust the second statement, I love you, because the first, I am he, is true. We can trust that he loves us, because it's true that he alone is God. I want to I illustrate this by talking about a hymn that I love. There's an old hymn called How Firm a Foundation. I checked. I know you sing it here too. And that, that hymn is largely a paraphrase of several sections of Isaiah, including verse 2 of our passage. Two of the stanzas are taken from verse 2 of our passage. When through fire tires, my pathway shall lie. When through the deep waters, he caused me to go. It's just quoting scripture, that passage. But it begins, do you know how that hymn begins? What is, what, how firm a foundation? What is the firm foundation? There's a modern rendition of that song. They've, you know how, I love how uh, 
um, they make modern remakes of hymns. We sang one here. You know, some clever, uh, clever musicians like, ah, I'll add a little chorus, rearrange it a little bit, and make a lot of money off of this song. <laughs> now, my cinema, cynicism aside, I actually love the modern ones. There's one on how firm a foundation, and, and the chorus is Jesus firm foundation. What is our firm foundation? How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. There's something about scripture that allows it to be a firm foundation. Why? Because he can have it written down before he does it. Isaiah, I'm going to do this. Write it down. Hundreds of years before I'm going to do it. I'm going to name the name Cyrus. I'm going to say what he's going to do, not only with the Babylonians, but with the, with the Egypt as well. Before I do it. I'm going to say what I'm going to do 500 years from now, 700 years from now, when Jesus is going to come. I'm going to have it written down before so that we can look at Scripture and say, it's a firm foundation. And then, when he says, I love you, it can be trusted. Because it's not just some clever preacher saying, this is what the culture wants from their God today, a God who loves. God declares what he's doing ahead of time, which is why the promises of Scripture can be trusted. Now, before we wrap up this middle section, I want to point out uh, one more thing. That first section, I love you, came with an imperative, didn't it? Fear not. Fear not. This second section, I am he, also comes with an imperative. Proclaim. Look at verse 10. See how it starts? You are my witnesses, declares Yahweh. And then look at verse 12 in the middle. And you are my witnesses, declares Yahweh. In both times we're as witnesses, what are we witnesses to? You see there in 10 and 12? Witnesses to the reality that I am he. Or according to verse 11, that those two verses sandwich, I, I am Yahweh, and besides me there is no, what does it say there in verse 11? No savior, no savior. He alone is God, which means he alone is redeemer, savior. And then look at how our, our section ends in verse 21. The people whom I form for myself, that they might declare my praise. You're my witnesses. You're my witnesses. I formed you. There's that word again. That you might declare my praise. This verse, verse 21, is picked up in 1 Peter chapter 2, where it says, God rescued us so that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Declared, saved, and proclaimed. We are part of that proclaiming. 
The world needs to hear that there is a God, one God, the only Savior. And just as Israel was called to be witnesses of this by declaring first, or witnesses of his declaring first and then saving, we should be prepared to do the same thing. I want you to, I want you to follow that. What were they to witness? That God has declared first and then done it. So let me ask you, do you feel like you could take people to a few places in the Old Testament where God foretold the salvation he would bring and then be able to show someone how the new, in the New Testament God kept those promises and then be able to talk about how that's transformed your life? Do you think you could do that? That's our job. We're witnesses. We're here to declare his praise, to, to proclaim. So verses 9 to 21, I am he. Our last section picks up on the third I am he statement in our chapter, and this time it doesn't end with just I am he, period. Look down at verse 25. I, I am he, who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I'll not remember your sins. So if you're keeping notes, this third section is, I am he who blots out your transgressions. I am he who blots out your transgressions, verses 22 to 28. Now remember, we already saw from verse 8 that God loves us when we're still in our sin. And this section just draws that idea out even more. In verses 22 to 24, Yahweh takes Israel to task for their shallow worship. Instead of desperately crying out to him, they've grown weary of him. Their worship is surface level, self-centered, and utilitarian. What's God doing for me? He's not giving me what I want. I'm outie. Maybe something else will do me one better. At the end of verse 23, Yahweh points out that the offerings and sacrifices weren't meant to be a burden and to make them weary. And he's right. They were designed as a pathway to atone for sin so that fellowship God could be restored. And more profoundly, they were designed to point forward to the greater sacrifice that would ultimately allow them to be reconciled to their God. He didn't burden or weary them with his sacrificial system. But that is how Israel viewed it. Ugh, another duty to perform. Do I have to do this again? So God points out, I didn't burden you, but you have burdened me with your iniquities. Instead of offering sacrifices, you're piling up sins. Then in, then in verse 26, there's this little courtroom scene. Prove to me your innocence. But of course we can't. We're crooked, way deep down. We come from a long line of sinners. Even our religious leaders were sinners. 
Adam and Abraham, our forefathers, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests, David, the king, sinners, sinners, sinners. We don't have a great track record. If we're trying to prove to God we're good enough, our case isn't very, gonna, isn't very strong. It's going to be a short trial. So what hope does Israel have? What hope do we have? Yes, he is going to judge rebellion. Verse 28 makes that really clear. Understanding the depth and richness of God's character as revealed in this chapter makes no sense unless it's against the backdrop of a God who's just, who takes sin seriously and punishes sin, another theme found replete throughout Isaiah. If in the face of God's love we continue to reject him and run from him, we will receive for eternity the due penalty for our sins. But God holds out hope in this section. Again, verse 25, I want to read it one more time. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. He's able to do that and be just because Jesus took the penalty for our sins, as Isaiah 53 will make much clearer. Again, he uses that mechanism, declared, as Isaiah 53, with greater specificity, what he's going to do And we see it fulfilled, the saving come when Jesus comes to take our sins upon himself. But here, I just want to linger, linger over God's heart. Sinners told by God, I love you. And we can trust those words and his promises because I am he the one true God who declared and then saved. And then he promises to blot out our transgressions, to remember our sins no more. This is our God. If we see him as, as he is, we'll run to him. If we know him as he is, will trust in him and not fear. I want, I long for everyone in this room to know our God like I know him. Isaiah 43 is true. And yet I want to know that same God better and better myself. Let's pray. Father, I don't know where each person in this room is, but you do. And there were some in this room that you wanted to know with great clarion precision that you love them. Wow, they're sinners. You're with them if they'll turn to Christ. 
so they need, need not fear. So use this word where you show us who what you're like and strengthen us today. In Jesus' name, amen.